actually presenting Jesus to people in one of the most powerful ways imaginable. Responding to insult with peace and service and good. And don't you long to represent your Savior well? You do. You wouldn't be here. So I ask you to rejoice in this privilege, even though you're convicted, and I am, by my failure to live it out. Don't leave here crushed in that sense. Leave here and rejoicing that you may look like Jesus as you do this. Let's pray. Welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Riser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. He struck Jesus, saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, saying, Oh, I'm sorry, I'll turn the other cheek. He doesn't say that. Remember what he says? You probably don't. He says this. If I have spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Does that sound like turning the other cheek to you in some of the ways this is perverted? Just whatever happens to you, doesn't matter. You just say, Oh, that's fine. It's good. Thank you for striking me. Hit me again. He goes, No, you sinned. You've just done what's wrong. I'm innocent. So what he says, it's what he does. He goes, I'm innocent. You just sinned. If I've done wrong, tell me how. Otherwise, you just sinned. You shouldn't strike me. See, there are times and places where you say, that's not right. Even when it's personal affront and you deal with it. It's going to take great biblical wisdom to know which is which, but never out of a heart which says, I hate you. Jesus was not in any way hating that high priest or hating that officer. We know he's going to pray in just a little while as he's on the cross that they will be forgiven, but he is responding righteously. So understand that you can't just willy-nilly apply this, doesn't matter what happens, any place that you just always say, it's okay that I be harmed. Think of the Apostle Paul. When he was in a very similar situation in front of the high priest, you remember what he did? He gets struck. And now, Apostle Paul didn't do quite as well as his master because the Apostle Paul said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And then the, they respond and say, you would say that against the high priest? Apparently, Paul did not recognize that this was the high priest. He'd been out of, he'd been out of circulation for a while in Jerusalem. And he goes, ooh, Scripture says you shouldn't speak evil against a, a leader of your people. He's not, he's not apologizing that he responded that they struck him because it was illegal then too. He's responding that he got mad. You see, that, that's exactly the difference. Jesus, when he responds, as it were, to being struck, says, hey, if I did wrong, tell me. But if not, why'd you strike me? Paul says, you whitewash wall. Or he gets mad. His heart of anger towards those who had struck him. You see, Paul wasn't perfect. But it wasn't, the fault, it wasn't the fact that it was still wrong for him to be struck. We'll look at this when we look at legal issues in two weeks, that there are times and places to claim legal rights and say, nope, that's not right. We're doing this. But you guys, the heart always is that you will not respond inappropriately. Now, additionally, this is not some kind of law against self-defense. God is not redefining the Old Testament law, which says you could defend yourself even with deadly force or that you could defend the innocent. It's very clear in the Old Testament and very nuanced. It's amazing. Uh, in the Old Testament, when it says, look, if someone breaks in in the middle of the night 
and wakes you up, startles you out of sleep, is on your property, in your house, what can you do? You can kill him. Self-defense. Now, interestingly enough, if that same person, or it wouldn't be the same, he's dead. If another person breaks in, in the daytime, you can't kill him. And if you do, you're guilty. Why? Because you have time to respond. You can see what he has. You can see if he has deadly force. It's not just someone shows up on your property, you kill him. I know, in, I know in Tennessee, people want to do that, but it's not the reality. Defend your home, yes. When someone breaks in in the middle of the night, might harm you and your family, can't assess it. It seems that that's right and good. In fact, even in the New Testament sense, in Luke twenty two thirty six, first Jesus sends them out, and the first, when he first sends them out to minister in the power of the Spirit, he goes, you can't take anything. Then when he's about to go back to be with, with his father, and he sends them out to minister really for the rest of their lives, he goes, oh, by the way, take a sword. This is not to take the sword to, to kill people in the name of Jesus, is that they're going into very dangerous situations and dangerous places. Self-defense is not undone by turn the other cheek, nor is defense of the innocent. If you see someone being killed, got to turn the other cheek. Additionally, it's not a, a rule for pacifism. He's not saying you can't be in the army. You couldn't do any governmental, uh, you couldn't respond through your government to harming someone else or to killing someone else. Very interesting in Luke 3.14. When the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, come to John the Baptist, and they're repenting, and they say, what should we do to repent? And what does John the Baptist say? He says, stop abusing your authority as a soldier, be, and, and stop complaining about your pay, two things that soldiers often do. He does not say, get out of the army, because it wasn't wrong. And it isn't wrong to serve. There's, now, now, this conscience is wrestles through those things, but this passage does not teach that you must be a pacifist, that you could not serve your country or kill in, in the name of that. And then finally, as the, and by the way, it's been taken and is taken today in all these ways. No self-defense, no protection of the innocent, you can't serve in the army. And this particular verse has been used to prove all of that, and it doesn't prove any of it. Lastly, some would say you can't be involved in the justice system because it often involves meeting out punishment, sometimes physical punishment, even all the way up to capital punishment. And since Jesus is clearly, they would say, forbidding that here, you can't be part of the justice system. Absolutely not. What, what, is, what does Paul say in Romans 13? The government is to do what? It bears the sword. It brings the proper response even unto capital punishment when there has been injustice. And you may be part of that. So it's not, that's what it's not teaching. It doesn't undo, however, the radical nature of what it does teach. In fact, again, I think sometimes we want those external responses. Well, I won't be in the army, but man, I can hate you. You know, I'll, I won't be in part of the justice system. I don't believe in capital punishment, but I will have a grudge against you the rest of my life. Well, you violated this principle. It's easier to do the external one than it is to do the internal one and to use wisdom in your application of the principle at all times. So turn again to Romans chapter 12 as we flesh out what it means to turn the other cheek. Because very clearly here, this is not just passive. It isn't just don't do evil and don't take revenge. It's not only about what you don't do. Because in all four of these illustrations, there is a positive response given. In this one, it's turn the other cheek or turn the other to him also. In the second one, it is give them your cloak if they want your shirt. In the third one, it's go the extra mile if they want one, go two. And in the fourth one, it's if they want money from you, give it. Every place there's a positive response. So baseline, don't resist evil. And then Jesus gives, really, the four positive responses we're supposed to make when harmed. And here's the first one, this turn the other cheek. Well, what does it mean? I think, again, Romans 12 is, is a great commentary. Many other verses which say these things. In 1 Peter chapter 
3, verse 14, says, Do not return evil for evil. No, verse 9. Do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. doesn't just say don't be evil in return. Positively speaking, you are supposed to bless when someone insults you. And it's made very specific here in Romans 12, very helpful for us. We looked at last week at verse 17 of Romans 12. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And then we looked at verse 19. Never take your own revenge. To leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But we purposely skip verses 18, 20, and 21 because those are the positive responses. Those are the turn the other cheek. Those are the stay in relationship. Those are do positive good when physically or when, when spiritually harmed, when harmed by evil men. So the first one here, right? So on your outline, the number two was dealing with insults from evil people. And the first way we deal with insults from evil people in a positive way that is turning the other cheek is to be at peace with them. I want you to think about this carefully. Look at verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, get the picture. Someone insults you. You don't respond evilly. You're trying your best not to harbor a grudge, although there might be some of that. You say, I'm not taking revenge but I am not happy with you and you have broken this relationship. And so I've got a, I've got a wall there. You're going to have to respond to me. You're going to have to do something to me in order for me to want to continue in this relationship. I'm out of here. Turn the other cheek means what? You have to pursue peace even with the person who harmed you. And again, we're talking insulted you. We'll talk more next or two weeks from now, legal ramifications when in a marriage someone is being physically beaten. I'm not talking about that. Because there's much harm and insult and difficulty that goes along with marriage without any physical wrestles or other relationships or insults by people outside of it. So the issue here is you are supposed to pursue peace with the one who just harmed you. In fact, the, the, the desire of your heart is instead of being, I'm, I'm stepping back from you, is to press into how can I be at peace with you? It's an amazing response, and the world doesn't do it, and the church too often doesn't practice it. Well, you hurt me. I'm not going to respond. I know I can't do evil. I know I can't take revenge, but our relationship is done. So no, you are supposed to work to be at peace. What does it say? If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, what, what it's saying there is, isn't that you can make a peaceful relationship between the two of you because they may never respond. They may continue to insult you. They may, in fact, they often do. And that's the whole idea that makes this so radical. You're kind of leading with your chin, as it were. Give me another one. I'll take another insult. But not just for the purpose of receiving insult as some kind of masochistic response to a bad relationship, sometimes called codependency. That's the, that's the psychological term for it. I just want to stay in and be harmed. Absolutely not. The goal is to make peace. I'm going to pursue you to make peace. Oftentimes it isn't made on their side, but it says as it depends on you, you can always be in a state of peace with that person. That is, I'm not your enemy. And when I think about you, I think about you with love, grace, kindness, and compassion, even when I recognize the truth of the fact that you have harmed me and that our relationship is broken. On your side, there's not to be one relationship in your entire life, no matter how badly you have been insulted, that you are not at peace with the person who did it. That's what Jesus is teaching. 
and that that's an active pursuit on your part. Again, not that you've solved the relationship because that involves them responding to you, but that in your heart you're not angry, bitter, or frustrated, and that you are not harboring designs of any kind of evil against them, that you are thinking of them in a peaceful, gracious, kind, and compassionate way. Is that challenging? Probably no more challenging words in the world than that. Particularly if you are thinking right now of a relationship in which you have been harmed grievously insulted in many ways over a period of time, which some of you have. You're to be at peace. Are you at peace? Do you think of them in a peaceful way, a joyful way? And would you do anything? And are you doing whatever you can to try to make peace with them, even if they will not have it? No, I'm done. Sorry. No, as far as it depends on us, in our hearts, most certainly, we are going to be at peace. And this takes great wisdom. This isn't just a matter of kind of thinking up, well, okay, I'm just, I feel like I'm at peace with you and I've got the subjective feeling. Just Every time I think about you, I'm like, oh, I feel so wonderful. It's not going to be that way with difficult relationships. There's going to be a measure of turmoil as you think about that person. But the issue is, the, the peacefulness is, I'm, I will not be an enemy with them. I will seek to, to be at peace. And I recognize that me towards them, I am no longer hostile. James 3.16 it takes such wisdom. We have to imply all the principles of Scripture actively in order to keep at peace with those who have harmed us and are still harming us in many cases. For where jealousy, says James 3.16, and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. By the way, if your own heart is jealous and selfishly ambitious, you're not at peace with people. And when people insult you, you hate it. And you will do whatever you can to make it stop because you're jealous and selfishly ambitious. So you can track that down in your heart when you won't make peace. Because it goes on to say, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed, this is verse 18 of James 3, listen carefully. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's your goal in a relationship when you have been harmed is to try to make, when you've been insulted, is to try to make peace. Now, hear me, please. We're not compromising the gospel to gain peace. We don't try to make peace at the expense of the principles of the word of God. That is why you can be at peace with people when they're still not at peace with you because the issue is the gospel. And they don't like you at all. And, and you're presenting Christ to them and they hate that. Well, you don't stop doing that to make peace. Again, you make sure there's no personal animosity or foolishness or sinfulness on your part that's causing the breach in relationship. It takes great wisdom. John Calvin says this, We're not to strive to attain the favor of men in such a way that we refuse to incur the hatred of any for the sake of Christ. As often as this may be necessary, and good nature should not degenerate into compliance so that for the sake of per, uh, preserving peace, we are complacent to the, to, to the sins of men. Because it's not overlooking or, or refusing to deal with sin to make peace. It is never sinning yourself and trying to work through the sins of others in such a way that you, it comes to peaceful resolution. We must never have a, have a heart of animosity towards anyone, even those we oppose, in order to be true to the gospel. We may, in fact, be their enemies in an objective sense. That is the thing we want they don't want. But we must not have a heart of hatred or ungodly anger subjectively in our hearts. This is only possible if you are secure in and bathed in the love and holiness of God. This is, again, gospel-centered, Christ-centered. This is not moralistic teaching about how you just need to think about people better. Think about everybody in the world as just nice. They're not nice. And they are harmful. 
many times. But we think about them in light of their need for Jesus and how we have received that from Jesus. Colossians 3.12. By the way, whenever I do biblical counseling, if you ever come into my office, <laughs> excuse me, this is the first verse you're going to get. Because there's always a relational issue. Always. It's this. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility. I'm going to ask, him, I'm going to ask you, are you a believer? I'll ask you to share your testimony. I'll ask you to work through those things. It might take us a couple of sessions to work through, are you really a believer? If you are, then what? You've been chosen of God. From before the beginning of time, regardless of your stand on, on Calvinism, or it doesn't, it, you've been chosen of God because you are his child. He poured out his love upon you, and he made you holy, gave you the ability to be holy, and gave you the righteousness of Christ. And in that confidence and strength, you can then put on, and must then, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. If you cannot fundamentally forgive and be at peace, I mean, this is the the nature of your life. You're characterized by a lack of peace. You're not a Christian. Now, Christians wrestle with it because they don't understand what God has done for them. That's why that verse is there. He says, as those who have been this, think about this, remember this. But if fundamentally you can't ever get past this, you've not been changed. If you have been, you take a hold of your change. God has loved me. Why can't I love someone else? God is at peace with me. Why won't I seek to do everything necessary to make peace with them? Because God did. You're only following your Savior when it comes to not returning evil for evil and making peace. By the way, that's why you're going to have to wrestle when you watch Fox News. Because this is not only... Now, as the closer a person gets in relationship, the more practically applicable this is because you're actually in relationships, so you're dealing with that moment by moment and day by day to a spouse or children or those in the church or extended family or those in businesses in Maryville or someone who calls you on the phone. But even those who insult Christians in general, do you hate them? And when that comes on and they're ranting and railing against Christians, they're stupid, they're foolish, they're homophobic, you name it, they're just coming against Christians, you're like, oh, I hate that. Watch out. Because this verse comes for you. And says, even then, you are not to have a heart of anger or bitterness towards them. I know you hate the evil. Evil's hated. But if your heart is anger towards the people who are evil, you have violated Jesus' commandment to turn the other cheek when you're watching TV. You can't go be with them and change it. But you could pray for them. And you could already turn a heart of peace. I am at peace with that railing person holding the sign, screaming against Jesus, screaming against believers. I need not and must not be angry. All the way from that to the person who is in your face screaming at you or insulting you. Guys, it's across the board. This is absolutely breathtaking that we would live life like this. Now you said, I told you Jesus gave a dangerous statement, but not so much in the way we think of it. Well, we'll misuse it. We don't know how to use it. It challenges us to the core. But the scripture is going to come for you again. Now, guys, please, hear me carefully. I'm convinced you guys want to do this. I'm not preaching this to you because, like, oh, a bunch of congregation that doesn't want to do this. You want to do it, but we wrestle, and it's challenging. But there's another problem when it comes to this. Here's what often happens. I know, Chris, I'm at peace. I hear this. I'm at peace. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I made my peace with that person. It's fine. And so I'll ask, so what are you doing to serve them? What? I sit on this side of the church. They sit on that side of the church. And I like that. And I might 
go by them in the hall and wave at them and say hi with kind of a strained smile on my face. But that's, I'm at peace. I'm not bitter. What does, it, what does our text say back? And I believe all this bound up in what Jesus says, turning the other cheek, you're staying in a relationship, you're continuing to be part, you're pressing in towards them is kind of the idea. Here's my cheek. As you press towards them in a relationship, oh, this gets us verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, laugh at him. You deserve to be hungry. <laughs> no, the wrong version. I just do that to see, make sure you're awake. Somebody's looking at the text. Look down at the text if you're in Romans 13 or Romans 12. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. What is that saying? Well, you're like, that's, that's no problem. My enemies aren't hungry or thirsty. They got plenty. No, you know better than that. What are we saying? Any good thing you could possibly do, you are actively looking to do it towards them. You are engaging in relationships so that you might make peace, and that means serving them in every way possible, meeting any need, spiritual or physical, that they might have. Whoa. You checked out of your marriage? Oh, I forgive him. I forgive her. I'm at peace, but I'm not serving you. Not until you respond to me. Children, towards your parents, siblings, got a member of the church, maybe an extended family member, maybe someone in the community. Oh, I'm at peace, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going near him. I'm not going back to that store. He cheated me last time. Ooh. Now again, you may choose for good reasons not to use their business again, but perhaps you would find a way to minister to them. That's what this verse is saying. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, turn the other cheek, that you are looking for ways. It's not passive. You're looking for ways to feed your enemy, to give him a drink, as it were. Direct quote from Proverbs 25, 21. Again, John Calvin. For to fail to do to our enemies the good they stand in need of, when it is in our power to do it, is a kind of indirect retaliation. Oh, he just got you. Oh, I'm at peace. But I'm not even going to see what we do is I'm not even going to get close enough to know if you have a need so that I won't have to meet it. And I don't want to get close to you because then I might have to serve you and love you and honor you. So I'll say I'm at peace and I'll stay far from you and then we're all good until you have a need. And then you're supposed to pour out and meet it. By the words food and drink, we are to understand the kindliness, Calvin again, of every sort. According, therefore, to our ability, we are to help our enemy in any matter in which he stands in need, either of our resources, our advice, or our efforts. It just gets us at every single level. The purpose of turning the other cheek or staying in relationship is to give a blessing so that the work of God can be accomplished in the life of your aggressor. Now, I'd like to prove that from the text. Because, well, notice what it says when you do this. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. So you'd be a good moral person like Mahatma Gandhi. A good Buddhist. A good Muslim. No. It says, so that you, in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. You're like, well, I mean, that sounds kind of revengeful in and of itself. So what are you saying? First and foremost, it can't be revengeful because if it was, it would be undoing everything that has just been taught. So I'm going to do good to you, and then you'll feel really bad. Oh, I feel good about that. Absolutely not. The idea of the burning coals on his head are the, is the idea of a conscience being activated that recognizes the nature of their own sinfulness in light of your demonstration of Christ and causes their conscience to bear witness against them that they are evil. But what's that for? So that they will turn 
So you want to heap. Guys, think about it. Every good act you do towards someone who is hurting you, the Spirit of God uses. Remember, in an unbeliever, they have a conscience. And the Spirit brings conviction of sin to unbelievers. And so the goal is that that conviction would be brought in a continual way. Every time you withhold a good act from someone who is harming you, you resist the Spirit's work in their life to bring conviction. I understand that God is sovereign in salvation. But I understand that you can't say, well, God will save who he wants, so I don't have to serve them in this way. You are just sinning if you say that. You are a means. Your good acts towards someone who has harmed you are the means that God uses to activate his conscience. Romans 2 says every man has one in such a way that they will either turn to Christ while they're on this earth because they recognize their abject sin in, in light of your good works shines the light and shows who Jesus is. Or you guys... Their conscience will be activated when Jesus returns. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you, and they will go, it's righteous. Your people were righteous. They lived righteously towards me. I saw it even before you came. You would prefer that enough burning coals would be heaped on their head before Jesus returns again, that the conscience will be activated unto repentance and faith. That's the idea, because that's the final summing up in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. There is no good that is not the gospel good, that is not bound up in the work of Christ on behalf of the, the, the people of this earth. We overcome evil with good. And again, the Bible is not shy about the punishment of the wicked and the nature of God that pours out wrath on the unrighteous, but the believer is, hold to hold, is told to hold intention, the proper joy in the punishment of evildoers and at the final judgment, and a proper desire to see the righteous saved from punishment by turning to Christ in humble repentance and faith. How much greater is the sin of one who commits a great evil and yet is met with even greater kindness? Our greatest prayer is that they will repent and be restored now so they will not have to suffer the calamity of God's eternal vengeance. You see, I would rejoice to see God's judgment upon a man in order to bring him to repentance, but not in the difficulty that 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 judgment causes in the life of that man. Do you understand that? I don't look and say, well, I'm glad he's really suffering. That's great. No, I'm like, I'm glad he's suffering if that will turn him to Christ. I long for God to do that work if it will be saving, and I want it to be saving, so God, please do that work. Even God views things this way. Ezekiel 18.23. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? And that's why God keeps people alive. We will see in three or four weeks the idea of the love of God that he pours out what is his love upon the just and the unjust, that they might come to know him. He does not desire the death of the wicked. He does not rejoice in the sense of, in some kind of personal vindictive rejoicing. Look how they're suffering. Now, he rejoices in the just punishment of evil ultimately, but that's not the same as rejoicing in the pain and suffering that someone experiences as that just punishment comes upon them. And we must not be that way either. Might you overcome evil with good? And, and overcome is a very strong word. To be victorious over, that is when someone is evil to you, you're victorious over it by responding not only without evil and without revenge, but positively with good positively with with giving anything they need and of making peace. And that's what it means to turn the other cheek when you have been insulted. Now, what is good, remember, is not what is some kind of moralistically good. Anything good in Scripture 
is any motive, attitude, thought, action, or word which is prepared by God, commanded by God, empowered by God, and for the glory of God. Good is always God-centered and Christ-centered. Always. And so we long for the good of every man to hear the gospel, to respond to the gospel, and to become like Christ. And we do that in a primary way when we are insulted and we turn the other cheek, staying in relationship, staying involved, being willing to be harmed. If that is what it takes to have the conscience activated towards their sin and for them to turn to Christ. So here's the question. Is there any relationship or relationships in your life this morning in which you are not turning the other cheek. You have been insulted, and then you are either returning some evil, perhaps some measure of revenge, or where you are not positively pursuing peace and positively seeking to do good. You have distanced yourself from the situation or checked out emotionally or moved yourself spatially. If there is, then you need to repent this morning. That's, that's the negative convicting side. And probably for each of us, there's something to be worked on. But here's the positive side. As you do, and I believe this is what you all desire to do. I don't think you'd be sitting here. As you do that, and even as you contemplate that, you have the precious privilege of demonstrating your Savior, of living like Jesus did, not just have some kind of slogan, actually presenting Jesus to people in one of the most powerful ways imaginable. Responding to insult with peace and service, and good. And don't you long to represent your Savior well? You do. You wouldn't be here. So I ask you to rejoice in this privilege, even though you're convicted, and I am, by my failure to live it out. Don't leave here crushed in that sense. Leave here in rejoicing that you may look like Jesus as you do this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the precious privilege that we have to represent you to a dying world by turning the other cheek, by staying in relationship, by doing what is good and what serves others for the purpose of the gospel instead of harming them or taking our revenge. Lord, thank you that you give us power. Thank you that you give us the heart's desire to do this, something that the world can never do. Lord, I pray for the broken relationships in this room, that the application of this principle would bring healing. Lord, I pray perhaps for any unbeliever in this room who is it's been ferreted out that their heart is unbelieving because they are in a constant state of revenge and anger and bitterness towards those who have harmed them. Father, might they take hold. Might, might even this message be the means of, of pouring burning coals on their head that they would recognize their sin and turn to you. Lord, we are so thankful that you would bear our wrath. Might you help us to properly represent you to a world that needs to know you. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. 
Again, that is gracemarival.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.